Hello and welcome back to Chartbeats, a journey through Saw. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and I'm here with my friend Matthew Denby. Hello, Matt. Hi, everyone. And Saw, of course, is Stock, Aitken and Waterman. And we're going to continue our journey through every single produced by the trio of Mike Stock, Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman. If you haven't listened to episode one, why not? We covered The Upstroke by Agents Aren't Aeroplanes, Anna Marie Elena by Andy Paul and Saw's first two hits, You Think You're a Man by Divine and Whatever I I do wherever I go by Hazel Dean. Matt, things were looking pretty good for Saw in 1984, weren't they? Yeah, they came roaring out of the gate with two brilliant hits that I still love to this day. Uh, an interesting little curio was their first single, and then they had uh, one that didn't really work for me, which was their Eurovision one. So, you know, uh, after that start, two big hits, we were sort of uh, all raring to go to see what else they could bring. And what happened, Gavin? Well, this episode, we're looking at singles five to eight produced by Stock Aiken Waterman and none of them were hits. So after that early success, they ran into a bit of a roadblock. Uh Sorry. So let's get straight into it. This week, we're starting off with Dark Glasses by Edwina Laurie. Let's have a listen. So that was Dark Glasses by Edwina Laurie. We're still in 1984. It came out in August in the UK and it didn't chart at all. Didn't make the top 100. Quite a disappointment for Saw, I would imagine, don't you think? You'd think so. You'd think so. Now, this is one of the ones which I had never heard until very recently. I I heard this one in preparation for this uh, podcast because I'd never heard it before, never heard of it before. I've got to say I was underwhelmed to begin with. It was a bit flat. You know, I love 80s music as much as everybody, but, you know, when I'm feeling nostalgic, I never go running for like the Nick Kershaws or the Howard Jones or the Paul Youngs of this world. That sort of mid-tempo, sort of flat, meh, 80s pop, never really was my thing. So I wasn't really sold on this. But then I listened to it a couple more times and I found myself humming the chorus. It is a little earworm, isn't it, Gavin? It's a real grower. And I think I remember saying that to you. It's a grower. Believe me, give it a chance. Um, But I didn't know this at the time either. I picked it up in Bath, of all places. In the late 90s, when I went to the UK, I basically went from one secondhand record store to another, filling all the gaps in my Saw collection. And so when I found the single for this, I was very excited. What we should point out at this stage is that Dark Glasses was first recorded by Nick Kershaw, who also wrote it. It was the B-side to his debut single, I Won't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which had come out in 1983. But I never really knew why Edwina Laurie had recorded it and released it a year later. And so we tracked it down. Here's Edwina talking about her version of Dark glasses. I think I brought out a single before that. It was a copy of Bye Bye Love, which did nothing, of course. And then a gentleman who managed me, worked for the record company, wanted me to do some recording and he knew Nick Kershaw. Nick was huge and he had a song called Dark Glasses, which I think was a B-side. And he said, oh, he'd be really happy for you to record Dark Glasses. And were you happy to record it? I loved it because I love Nick Kershaw. I thought, wow, anything that Nick did, because I, I really liked his writing. I didn't really know uh, Peter Waterman and those. I mean, I kind of heard of them. But as you say, they were just up and coming. They were all exciting. And they sent me along to their studio, their house. I think I went to Matt's house or Mike's house and we wrote the B-side. And 
it kind of went from there really it was super easy you know it was over very quickly you know we just it was fun you know we were all excited we're all kind of in that buzz of that you know that time and at that point they hadn't had the huge success you know there was the buzz around and I suppose there was a little buzz around me there was a buzz around Nick Kershaw and well, do you know the story that happened with me in Dark Glasses? No, no, tell me. Something happened with Nick Kershaw and the record company with Dark Glasses. So my song was kicked, taken off. And in those days, how it took off is the radio pick it up and have record of the week. You know, we were getting picked up to go to do Top of the Pops in, in Germany. It was really picking up. So that was fantastic. And there was some disagreement with Nick and his record company. So they dropped Nick Kershaw like that and of course so then they dropped all the push on dark glasses for me too so it just falls flat on its face within 24 hours so that's what happened so nick kershaw fell out with his own record company oh his record company had a fallout with nick yeah okay the record company fell out with nick i think we were all on the same record company at that point so once they drop it and they don't get behind it it's just it's over and within 24 hours, it was over. And it really was beginning to have a little, you know, it was getting played, started to get played. And But once that stops, you've got nobody going out plugging the record. You've got no one playing. You know, it's, it's over. So it becomes politics. I wasn't really aware at the time. No, I didn't. I was a young girl. I didn't understand what had happened. So and I was like, well, why am I? Why does that affect me? But it just did. And it may have had to do with the publishing. So when you think about it, Dark Glasses was his song. Did you have any reservations about releasing something that that had already been out there no no it felt like it was more for a woman anyway I don't know why I just was like no I can own this song completely I had written a few things before and I was hopefully going to be doing some more writing of the idea was that Mike and Matt and I would write together but you have to have a little bit of success after Dark Glasses were there talks of doing another single I think I was a little disillusioned, a little disappointed. I was doing other stuff. I was doing TV stuff, I think. Was I then going in to do video jock stuff? I was still doing backing vocals for people, some theatre stuff, um, terrible movies, you know, be thingies of movies. So, so I was kind of all over. And then did you decide, okay, the entertainment business is not for me? Was there a point where you'd made that decision? I think I met my husband and got married and ended up having three kids very quickly. One, but Yeah, I didn't want to. I, it was fun. I'd loved it. And I didn't. It was a choice I made not to continue. You know, I quite liked doing something different. I wasn't pursuing trying to be a pop star. Another thing that I didn't realise until a couple of weeks ago is who Edwina Laurie is. Do you know who she is, Matt? I know now, but before this, I had no idea. I discovered this in, in my research. Edwina Laurie is Lulu's sister. Lulu of Relight My Fire with Take That Fame. And To Sir With Love. And Shout. And she did Eurovision back in the day. When you were doing the music side of things did Lulu give you any tips or advice or or did I'm you... sure she I'm sure she did but as a, as a little sister I wouldn't have listened <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me she didn't when I was recording and at that point actually she didn't I don't know what she was doing with her life I was pretty focused on my life didn't even think she knew I brought out Bye Bye Love she was more focused on her own stuff um, and there's a 10 years difference between us uh, we did some work together so I did do a, I did work with her for a while and I did some backing vocals with her uh, so when she was touring at one point through all this I would I wouldn't do my stuff on stage but I would support her 
and I'd come on with her and we'd come up front and we'd sing some silly little songs together, you know, which was fun, which was really fun. There was always comparisons. We looked like two peas in a pod and we sound pretty similar. I mean, I can sing with her and, you know, it's so tight because we sound, our voices are very similar. My thought of not continuing continuing was they didn't really, there wasn't enough room really for two Lulus. I wasn't as one-pointed. I didn't really, you know, you have to be so hungry to continue doing this work. You know, you have to be really have blinkers on. It's a tough business, you know, and I didn't, that wasn't for me. So yeah, the pop star thing didn't really work out for Edwina. Dark Glasses didn't really work out for Stock Aiken Waterman. So what did they do next, Matt? For the next venture, Stock Aiken and Waterman continued the Sicily theme with a, a band called Girl Talk, and they had a single called Can the Rhythm. It's a little song that had been released in 1983, but when Saw got hold of it, they gave it a complete overhaul. Let's give it a listen. So that was the 1984 version of Can the Rhythm by Girl Talk. As Matt said, that had originally come out in 1983 by Girl Talk version one, which was uh, Karen Wright and Lee Pierce were in Girl Talk originally. By the time it came out again in 1984, Lee had been, I don't know, given the heave ho for all I know, and uh, been replaced by Julie Wright, Karen's sister, thus the sisterly connection that Matt mentioned. And Girl Talk were very different second time around, weren't they? Yeah, completely unrecognized. They had been styled and made over. And the thing we should point out is that they were 12 and 13 on that first record. Karen was 12 and and Lee was 13 and they looked it. Yeah. And they sounded it, didn't they? And completely shocking that a 12-year-old wrote this song. Quite amazing that she wrote it. But uh, let's have a listen to that original version because it does sound remarkably different. Here it is. Right, so what do you think about that backing track that sounds awfully like uh, something from a Casio home organ, Gavin? It's pretty, yeah, it, it's pretty dodgy, let's be frank. I think that Stock Aiken Waterman did a really good job in transforming this into something much more polished, much more professional sounding. I don't love the song. It's okay, but it's one of those songs that, yes, again, I'm, I'm going to bore you with my stories of collecting records in <laughs> the 90s, but it's another one I picked up in the 90s having not heard it in the 80s. And I got it, ticked it off my list, and then pretty much filed it away and uh, didn't really listen to it much. Yeah, and yeah, nothing special. I mean, it did do okay in America where I believe it got into the top 30 of on the dance charts, which is nothing to be sneezed at. Nothing to be sneezed at. I mean, yeah, top 30 of the dance charts. It got to number 92 in the UK, which, yeah, not great either. But I guess there were maybe hopes for bigger things for this song. This time around, it was on Innervision, which was Wham's original label. Right. So Innervision clearly had some money. They got Stock Aiken and Waterman involved. They gave the girls a makeover. And maybe, yeah, maybe they were thinking, Girl Talk are going to be the next big pop act. Yeah. It wasn't to be. Yeah, look, the song's a bit of a nothing burger, I've got to say. I think maybe the fact that 
that it got two runs at potential successes, probably because someone in the record industry was excited by the concept, you know, two really young girls writing a song. And who ever heard of that before? I'm a 12-year-old writing a pop song. But unfortunately, the end result was not that great. And I don't think it really deserved to be a hit, to be honest. So Gore Talk continued for a little while, released a few other singles, but then, yeah, never to be heard of again. However, Karen, right, if you are out there, we would love to chat to you, although we've kind of just slagged off your song. But but I would be fascinated to hear what it was like as a teenager working with Stockhaken Waterman or just as a teenager recording, having a music career in the 80s. Does anyone know where Karen is? Karen, Karen. All right, let's move on. What's next? Okay, next up, we have the follow-up to You Think You're a Man, It Can Only Be Divine. Here's I'm So Beautiful. That was I'm So Beautiful by Divine, another shouted Stock Aitken Waterman song. And obviously You Think You're a Man had been massive. There was always going to be a follow-up. It was kind of a no-brainer that Stock Aitken Waterman would do a follow-up, right? Right, right. Now, I don't mind this one, actually. It wasn't much of a hit. I don't actually recall ever hearing it at the time, which is funny because Divine had just been huge with his last single in Australia, all over the mainstream media. No recollection of this ever being played back in my uh, high school days. I did pick up on it many years later when I was uh, going back through the uh, discography. I think it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's got three things that I like. It's got cowbells, it's got a slamming beat, and it's got orchestral stabs. Let's hear one of those now. Yeah, I'm not convinced by I'm So Beautiful. Um, It only got to number 52 in the UK chart, didn't chart at all in Australia. And I think, yeah, probably didn't deserve much more. The difference was it was written by Stock and Aitken this time round. They hadn't written You Think You're a Man. And I don't know that it's their best work. No, but, you know, it was a little step along the way. It was it was a song that sort of led us on to better things. They probably made a few mistakes here. They tried to ca- recapture the magic of You Think You're a Man, the comedy of that tied to, you know, uh, with a fantastic sort of clubby production, but it didn't really get that X factor, did it? It didn't, and I think, you know, I hate novelty records. Anyone who reads my chart recaps at chartbeats.com.au will know that I hate novelty records because I'm always going on about it. And You Think You're a Man is kind of an exception to the rule because it's kind Kind of not really a novelty record. It's got novelty elements, I guess. Yeah, like, it's a bloody good record that just happens to be funny. It's not Star Trek and by the firm. Exactly. Or, you know, like an ostentatious stand-up regime. But this one, I, I don't know, it, it did just feel like a, a second-rate version of You Think You're a Man with a, a chorus that's not as good. And, I, you know, I know that they crank up the backing vocalists on the chorus in these Divine songs, which we would see Stock and Waterman do a lot later in the 80s with uh, some, some of the artists who maybe weren't the strongest of singers, shall we say. And, and you know, you can get the sense of a chorus over all that shouting, But I don't love I'm So Beautiful. I don't think I listen to it. I I never listen to it. You know, maybe I would listen to it if there was an actual singer singing it. Like, um, what would I'm So Beautiful sound like if Rick Astley was singing it? (laughs) That's quite a thought. Rick Astley singing I'm So Beautiful. Well, you know, I did often wonder with, say, like the Big Fun songs, for example. They're great. So I love Handful of Promises. But, you know, and we will get to this eventually. But the vocals aren't strong. So how good would it be with a great song sung by a great singer and and yeah Rick Astley probably 
isn't the right singer for um, Handful of Promises because it's so high-pitched. Maybe Nathan Moore from Brother Beyond because he had a higher voice. Right. But I guess Rick's deeper tone is closer to Divine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think you can't have a Divine song without shouting and raspiness. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, no, of course. But maybe that's my problem with I'm So Beautiful. I would like to hear it sung and, and maybe that's why I would like the song more if it was sung by Rick. You know, maybe we should reach out to Rick and get him to record a version of I'm I'm so beautiful. I'd pay almost any money to hear that record. All right, let's make it happen. (laughs) So that's what we think about I'm So Beautiful, but what about someone who actually worked on the track? We spoke to Mixmaster Phil Harding, who had this to say. Wonderful person. Larger and louder than life. So, yeah, he seemed wonderful. I mean... You know, vocally divine was what he was. I mean, Mike Stock, who was the the vocal specialist, did fantastic to get what he got <laughs> out of divine. We always called it follow up itis. You know, you have <laughs> you have one big record, and then you try and follow it with a similar formula, uh, and you never quite know. You know, sometimes it, it it can go on and hit bigger, like we did with respectable with Mel and Kim, compared to showing out. But more often than not, it doesn't do as well. I mean, for me, I'm So Beautiful was still a great record. I think the more unique and special aspect about You Think You're a Man was the song itself. As anyone will tell you that's been successful in the industry, it always starts with a song. So if if we're really, you know, being quite picky at why wasn't I'm So Beautiful as successful as I Think You're a Man, I'd put it down to the song, you know, uh, more than anything else. So things weren't looking so good. Three flops on the trot for Stockake and Waterman. Surely things would improve with the next one, Matt, right? Well, you'd think so because it is the lovely Hazel Dean who just delivered two major top 10 hits in the UK with Searchin' and then Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. So with the next single, they went with another sort of high energy one from a similar vein as Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. And it was called Back in My Arms Once Again. So that was Back in My Arms once again by Hazel Dean, the follow-up to Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. She sure did love a bracket, did Hazel. <laughs> and unfortunately, despite being, as Matt said, another uplifting, joyous, high-energy track, it missed the UK Top 40, but only just, didn't it? Yeah, very, very, very painful. It stopped at 41, which is quite a, a bad thing in the UK, because once you cross that magic threshold into the Top 40, you get, you get considered to be on top of the pops. And back in those days, if you get booked on top of the pops you can then shoot right up into the top 10 the next week because you've got that level of exposure and to just be hanging outside of the top 40 like that stopping at 41 it must have been awful for hazel well, funny you should say that because we spoke to Hazel and asked her about how frustrating it was to just miss the top 40. Let's have a listen to what Hazel had to say. Was it a no-brainer to keep working with Saw? Yes, at the time. Yeah, definitely. Because we had, uh, well, we, we were in the middle of doing the album, recording the first album, Heart First. So, yeah, I mean, I was totally committed at that point in time. And were Back in My Arms and No Fool written for you or did Mike and Matt have them up their sleeve? They were written for me. Famously, those two singles peaked at number 41. Mm-hmm. How frustrating was that? Very frustrating, yeah. 
there were a few little problems going on with Proto Records at the time. I think they were struggling a little bit, maybe. They didn't nominate me for Best Female Singer at the Brits and things. There was a few things that, that were going wrong. So it's, it's a mixture, really. I guess it comes back to it being a small company. It sounds like things kind of ran away and they couldn't keep up. Yeah, a bit like that. Right, that's interesting to hear from Hazel herself. I wonder if it would have helped if they'd had a video to sort of push it over the line. I've always wondered that too, because Hazel didn't have music videos at this era of her career, and I've always wondered why that was the case. And so I asked her. Here's what Hazel had to say about the lack of videos, and her answer was actually kind of surprising. Can we talk about music videos for that era? Because I think Mm. I'm right that... There weren't any. (laughs) Yes, that was what I was going to ask. Was that because Proto didn't have the the budget for it? Well, no, because in the days of searching and whatever I do, no one videos weren't a big thing. It wasn't a thing at that point of time. When the back in my arms thing came along, videos were just starting to come into their own around that time. That's another thing. We did do a video for Back in My Arms, believe it or not, but it was so awful and dreadful. I forbid it to go out. You know, I just got really angry, said, you know, if you put that out, I will not promote this record. I do remember saying that. What was so bad? It was just awful. I can't even go there. I don't even want to go there. It just wasn't right for me. So it never saw the light of day. It it just looked cheap and nasty and, and it just... You know, again, we're talking small label here. So, uh, uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good. So there we go. I don't know how public this is. I don't I don't know if Hazel has spoken about this before. She probably has. And I've just haven't read it. But I never knew that she recorded a video for Back in My Arms once again. No. And I would do almost anything to watch it after hearing that. <laughs> I want to see this video. I think it would be hilarious. I'm intrigued because, yeah, she didn't um, want to go into the detail of why she didn't like it. She just kind of was like, yep, yeah, it's not for me. Yeah. I'm intrigued as well. Yeah, that piqued my interest. If it was just really low budget and tacky, it wouldn't be that much of a a mystery. But yeah, keen to know. But I think good on her for saying, no, I'm not putting it out and, you know, standing up for herself. It does seem like Hazel was was calling a lot of the shots at this time in in her career. And that's great to see because that probably would have cost her money to pull that video. Usually artists have to pay for those videos out of their royalties, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Recoupable costs and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, so unfortunately, Back in My Arms once again missed the top 40 and spoiler alert from Hazel's chat, her next single did as well, which we'll get to in a coming episode but i'm surprised in a way that back in my arms didn't do so well because it did stick to the formula of search and and whatever i do wherever i go and you would have thought that would have worked in its favor but maybe it was too much of the same thing it didn't hit the goals that the last single did it's just not as good a song hazel's voice is fantastic it's got a lot of energy to it but it's not of that caliber unfortunately i don't think it ever was going to go into the top 10 i think there was a poor choice of singles there are better songs on the album including the next single, which we'll talk about later. I actually much prefer that to this one. And you know what? Hazel does too. More on that when we get to No Fool for Love. Things weren't going so well on the UK chart uh, or the Australian chart. None of the songs we've talked about today made it on the Australian chart. So things weren't going so well for Saw, but that was all about to change. Yes. Coming up next, we've got a song that changed everything, changed the face of music even. It's a song that is so big that, you know, everyone from your grandparents to your little nieces and nephews under five, they all know this song, even though it was released literally decades ago. It's an absolute classic of pop music and without this record we never would have had Kylie Minogue and all sorts of other amazing records. It is one of my favourite songs of all time and I'm going to say it, I think it is one of the best songs of the 80s. 
As you may have picked up, Matt's a big fan of the song we're going to feature in our third episode. And, you know, you may have also picked up that he has a lot to say about it. So we're going to spend all of episode three talking about You Spin Me Round Like a Record by Dead or Alive. It was Saw's first UK number one. We have to give it its due respect. So we're going to do a deep dive into You Spin Me Round Like a Record in episode three. And we might have a special guest to chat about the track with us too. So, uh, yeah, watch out for that. Very, very excited. Very excited can't wait to talk about this one i could talk about it all day and i have and that's why we're doing a full episode until then head to chartbeats.com.au slash saw if you want to subscribe please subscribe and gain access to bonus content this week we're doing some deep dives into all the sister duos that stock aiken awardman worked with and we're going to talk a little bit more about divine the music of divine and we're going to hear some more from hazel because honestly our chat with hazel was so good and she gave so much great content we can't fit it all into these episodes but she's going to talk more about the heart first album so uh, yeah if you want to hear more about that check it out at chartbeats.com.au slash saw otherwise we'll see you for episode three until then see you around like a record baby boom tish. <laughs>